You're listening to Talking Law, the podcast where business owners just like you discover how to avoid legal landmines and build value using smart legal tips. Join your host, Joanna Oki, as she cuts through the legal jargon and gives you clear and simple actionable legal strategies, which will get you optimal business results. Hi, this is Joanna Oki here. Welcome back to Talking Law. Today we're talking about terms in contracts and in particular boilerplates. So let's start off with what is a boilerplate? So boilerplate terms are commonly used terms that often appear at the end of a contract and often under the heading general, but not always. So generally at the end of the contract, they're somewhere. And often they're considered to be clauses that don't usually change much from one contract to another. So why is it important for us to be talking about this today? I think that it's really important for anyone who deals with contracts to understand everything that's in the contracts. And once you understand these areas, it becomes easier for you to pick up any issues that might be relevant to your situation or how the contract applies to you or your business. And with boilerplates, even though they can be quite standard from contract to contract, understanding what they mean is important because sometimes the way they are used is not appropriate for your situation or the situation of the contract that they're being related to. So there can be traps held within these clauses that it's important for you to at least understand. What often happens is that people, when they review a contract, will often review the deal terms. So that's the initial terms of the contract that really get into the detail of who is doing what by when and the other obligations and rights that are created under the contract. But often when you get to the end of the boilerplate clauses, because they look so similar to contracts you may have seen in the past. And because the headings look quite often quite similar, as I say, to other contracts that you've seen, people stop reading in a detailed way. And the problem with this is sometimes the things that are in those clauses are something that you really should be considering. Also, The mere fact that they're placed at the end of the contract also means that often people, particularly people who aren't used to reading contracts a lot, get a little bit over reading the contract by that point. And so they're happy to take an easy way out of sort of saying, oh, yeah, there's the usual entire agreement clause or or whatever the other boilerplate clauses are that are in their contract and not pay attention to them. So today what we're going to do is run through some common boilerplate terms and explain what they mean. And I'll just give you a little tip in relation to when they may or may not be appropriate for you to consider including in your agreement. So we'll run through just a few today so that we're not making this too boring. And then in a future podcast, we'll keep running through some more. So the first one up today is an entire agreement clause. So usually you'll see it's sitting under the heading of something like entire agreement, or it may not have a heading at all, but it's usually a clause that says something like this. This agreement contains all of the terms agreed between the parties and supersedes all prior agreements and representations between the parties. So why is this entire agreement clause used? Essentially, it's used so that it's clear that all of the the terms that are in this contract contain all of the agreement that you've come to in relation to the subject matter of the contract to try and rule out the possibility of one party later arguing that there were more things that that 
had been discussed but hadn't been included in the contract. Now, this can be a double-edged sword. If you are, for example, purchasing supplies or services from someone else, another organization, and they have made another number of representations that you've relied on, say, for example, a hosting agreement for a website and you've negotiated the level of uptime that you require, say you've negotiated a 99% level uptime, but that isn't recorded in the contract, this sort of entire agreement clause can be a little bit of a trap because essentially you may have difficulty proving later that the 99% uptime was something that you'd relied on that should have been or was part of the agreement between both of the parties because of this little entire agreement clause that essentially says because that wasn't in the contract, you therefore can't rely on it in future as it being something that's involved in the contract or related to the contract. Now, there might be arguments on both sides, but obviously the action plan for you in relation to any contract is making sure that any of the key terms that you've negotiated are indeed in that contract. And if you have an entire agreement clause, it's even more important to ensure that everything that you had discussed or that you may require out of this contract that you're dealing with is included in an express form in the contract itself. One other trip with an entire agreement clause is when you have executed contracts other than this contract that you might still want to rely on because what this entire agreement clause does is generally the wording of it says that this is in the entire agreement of the parties and that this agreement supersedes all other agreements or representations between the parties that relate to the subject matter of the agreement. So this means, for example, if you've signed a non-disclosure agreement or a confidentiality agreement before the execution of this current agreement, this agreement might indeed override the provisions of that previously signed confidentiality agreement. So if there is an entire agreement clause in an agreement you're signing, you need to think about whether or not you have any other agreements on foot that you want to remain in place. And if you want to re- them to remain in place, then the entire agreement clause needs to be amended so that you refer to those other agreements that you want to stay in place. Or alternatively, you can just make sure you import the clauses of those other agreements into this agreement. So in our example of a confidentiality agreement, you would then make sure that confidentiality terms that were sitting in the confidentiality agreement now sit in this agreement between the parties. So that's the entire agreement clause. Let's move next to the no assignment clause. So a no assignment clause might be under a heading no assignment, or it might be under a heading assignment, (laughs) or it might have no heading at all. But essentially what the clause will say is something like, neither party may assign this agreement without the authority of the other party. And the reason for this is that you may wish that the other party that you're dealing with can't be in the position of transferring their rights and obligations under this agreement to someone else without you getting a veto over that. So you might say, once again, if you're dealing with a particular supplier, I only want to deal with that supplier. I don't want to deal with anyone that they might assign this contract to. So I don't want to deal with anyone else other than this supplier. 
And if they're trying to assign the contract to someone else, then I want them to come back to me and get permission. So that's a reason why you might want a no assignment clause in the agreement. A reason why you may not want the no assignment clause in the agreement is if you might be in the position where you might want to assign the agreement. Say, for example, if you are in the situation where you might be likely to sell the business or contracts under the business, in the future, you might say, well, I don't want to have to go back to this party and get their authority at that point or their authority for me to assign certain rights that I have under the agreement. So in that case, you might find that a no assignment clause is not beneficial to you and you might want to get rid of that out of the agreement. Sometimes these clauses are drafted in such a way that they might say that one party has the ability to assign, but another party doesn't. So that can work for you if you're the one who's being given their flexibility. And it may not work for you if it's the other party that is giving themselves the flexibility in this agreement and you're not getting the flexibility. And indeed, one thing to bear in mind if you're based in Australia and your contracts have a jurisdiction and a governing law clause of Australia, which we'll talk about in just a minute, (laughs) about what that means, because that's another commonly used boilerplate term. If you're in that situation where you're in Australia and your contract jurisdiction is Australia, then just be aware that the new contracts, unfair contracts, legislation, laws might apply in this area if one party has said that they have the right to assign without authority of the other party but the other party doesn't have the right to assign. This could, in some certain situations, be seen as an unfair contract term if the organisations that deal with this contract, if one is a small business and otherwise it complies with the requirements of that new legislation. And if you're interested to find out about that legislation and what the what the relevance is to this kind of clause in a contract, then um, pop back and have a listen to one of the episodes in the past. I think it was episode two or three. <laughs> Go back and check that out and see and have a listen so that you understand what the impact of the legislation is in relation to these sorts of clauses. All right. So that is the no assignment clause. Next, I want to talk about a no waiver clause or a waiver clause. And what this clause usually says, so the words that are usually used, is that any failure by a party to remedy a breach or to notify a breach under this agreement won't be considered a waiver of their rights. And what this means is that if you identify a situation where the other party has been in breach of the agreement and you don't pick them up on that breach immediately, that won't be seen to be a waiver of your rights to enforce that breach later on down the track. Now, this is a really important concept because I think it's extremely important for you when you're dealing with your contracts to be really proactive if you identify times when the other party is not complying with their obligations under the contract. This sort of no waiver clause is really helpful to make sure there's you have an argument as to why your failure to bring up the issue of their breach doesn't then absolve them of the right that you have into the future to to go back and pick them up on that breach. But I think as a matter of practice, it's super important that we're really on top of these contracts. And from a practical sense, 
are being clear when we identify a breach with the other party that there is a breach, that we've noticed the breach, that we haven't, we're not waiving our ongoing rights to pick them up on this breach or to have them remedy the breach. But if it's not a massive issue to you at the point, at this point, you could perhaps just nicely suggest a workaround for them that works for you as well. But I've seen organisations in the past just let breaches ride through because the relationship has been good and they've not wanted to disturb the relationship. The problem is once you allow things to occur once or twice, it can be very easy for that to fall into a habit and it practically can be very hard to remedy and pull back later on after the event. So whilst I think this is an extremely important clause to have in the agreement to say that the fact that you haven't enforced the terms at a particular point doesn't mean that you waive your right to enforce them. I think that's important to include in your contract, but it's even more important from a practical perspective that you are really on top of any of these areas where you identify breaches and make sure nicely if you want in a way that doesn't harm the relationship, but just make sure you're proactive about about managing it. All right. Now, the last two areas that I want to talk about today are variations and jurisdiction and governing law. And then in future episodes, we'll talk about other boilerplates like subcontracting, severance, force majeure, and conflict clauses within these boilerplates. Okay, so the second last area we'll talk about then is a no variations clause and amendment clause. So what this clause usually says is something along the lines of this party can't be amended unless agreed by both parties in writing. Or it might say this agreement can't be amended or varied unless agreed in writing by the authorised representatives of each party. So what this essentially means or the point of this clause is that if in an organisation, certain people of certain authority levels have entered into an agreement. It's protecting against the situation where other people inadvertently might, within the organisations who are dealing with each other in relation to the contract, might inadvertently agree to something that is different to the terms of the contract and therefore inadvertently create a situation where their organisation is bound to some sort of varied terms that are varied from those written terms of the contract. So it introduces more of a formality in relation to how the parties can then vary or amend the terms of the agreement. So in the first example I posed where the clause simply says neither party can amend the agreement or vary the agreement other than in writing, then essentially what it's saying is both parties have to um, write and sign a document that they exchange with each other to confirm any amendment to the terms that are already set out in this agreement. On the other hand, if you have a clause like the example that I gave as the second example where the clause says this agreement may only be varied in writing by the authorised representatives of each of the parties, then this means that what is trying to happen here is a locking down of who it is that can actually sign the document that authorises a departure from the terms and conditions that are set set out in the um, contract. 
So this is a good approach to use if, for example, you want to make sure that there's no one else in your organisation that can agree to an amendment of the terms. You might make sure that you make it clear that only the authorised representative, which you might then put details of in the schedule, so that might be a manager of a certain level, it has the right to amend the document. Okay, so that's it for amendment and variation. There's actually quite a lot that I could talk about in relation to that issue for contracts because amendments and variations in some circumstances can create a lot of problems for parties. So there are ways that you can use the contract to lock down how variations will be calculated or how the parties will deal with the situation if there's variations um, in relation to the original goods or services that are being provided under the contract that were originally envisaged. But that, I think, is probably the topic for another podcast into the future sometime. So the last clause I wanted to go through today in the boilerplates is jurisdiction and governing law. This is a clause that is quite usually right at the end of the document. So quite often this will be the very last clause that you'll see in an agreement. And the reason it is so important is because you're essentially setting out what the jurisdiction is and the governing law that relate to the agreement so that you know which courts have the right to hear any argument in relation to the contract and which laws will apply to the contract. Because the laws of different jurisdictions and different countries differ, sometimes quite dramatically. And so what might be interpreted or how how a contract might be viewed in one jurisdiction might be completely different to how it will be viewed or dealt with in another jurisdiction. So this is relevant um, particularly if you were dealing with offshore suppliers or clients and can also be relevant from state to state within Australia. So the usual course of events is usually whoever drafts the contract or has the contract template and sends it out to the other side will usually start with a governing law and a jurisdiction that is their jurisdiction and their governing law. So, um, and, and I guess it's relevant for me to talk about what the difference is between the words jurisdiction and governing law. So governing law is exactly as it sounds, the law that will govern the terms of the contract. So the law that will be used to interpret the, in terms of the, the terms of the contract, whereas jurisdiction means the jurisdiction under which the courts have the right to hear any argument. Now, usually jurisdiction and governing law are the same. In fact, almost always they're the same. And this is pretty obvious because you don't want courts from one jurisdiction being forced to consider an action in relation to a contract that has a governing law from another jurisdiction. So it makes sense that your governing law is the same as your jurisdiction. As I said, the game that's often played is whoever drafts the contract or whoever provides the contract will usually have the governing law and jurisdiction is there as their jurisdiction and governing law. But it might well be that if you feel that if you're in a different jurisdiction to what that is and you feel that it's appropriate for you to get protection in your jurisdiction and you think the goods or services are being provided more predominantly in your jurisdiction, then you might try and get the jurisdiction clause changed. And the benefits for you in having it changed are 
often that it's easier, number one, for you to understand and for your lawyers who operate in your own jurisdiction to understand what the laws are in that area. And number two, it's easier and often more cost effective for you if you have to bring an action against the other party to bring that action in your own jurisdiction so you don't need to travel and you don't need to go and get lawyers that are based in a different jurisdiction. On the flip side, some of the downsides of the approach, particularly from an international perspective, is if you have the jurisdiction as your own jurisdiction. So let's say you're an Australian company and you're contracting with an overseas-based supplier. One of the issues with this jurisdiction concept is that if you make the jurisdiction Australia, it will probably be easier for you to bring an action to litigate. It will probably be cheaper for you and it will probably be more certain for you than if you're trying to litigate in another country. But the issue becomes if there is no representative or no assets of that other organisation here back in Australia, then you might sue the other company, but it might be very difficult for you to recover under any action that you've brought, i.e. to go and actually get money from them to recover under the action, um, the result that you've received. So jurisdiction and governing law can be a little bit tricky. And these are the sorts of areas that you know, change depending on each of the situations, the level of risk involved and what it is that you're doing under the contract. So that's the sort of thing that you probably really need to go and speak to someone about on a contract by contract basis. All right, so that's it. Today we covered quite a few boilerplates. Hopefully I helped in terms of giving you a bit of an idea of what to look out for in each of these clauses. And hopefully the next time you get a contract on your desk and you need to look through it, each of these clauses will make a little bit more sense to you. So when you're reading them, you're more readily able to identify why they're there and what the elements are that you potentially should be thinking of changing into the future. So once again, just to recap, the sorts of clauses we talked about are entire agreement clauses, the assignment clauses, the no waiver clauses, the partnership or agency clauses, and the um, variations and amendments clause, and finally, jurisdiction and governing law. Now, if all of this has been a little overwhelming for you and you're in the position where you don't want to be thinking about any of these clauses yourself, just jump onto our website at talkinglaw.com.au and there you can make contact with our lawyers who'd be happy to have a chat with you in the first instance for free to have a talk about the types of contracts you deal with and the types of ways our lawyers over at Aspect Legal can uh, help to assist. All right, well, that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please pop over to iTunes and leave us a review. We'd be really grateful. And if you're interested in hearing about a particular topic that you deal with in your business and you'd like some legal answers to, just head over to our podcast website at talkinglaw.com.au and leave a message on one of our episode pages. You'll find a recorder there that you can leave your questions in. We'll be answering listener questions in future episodes. Thanks again for listening in and see you next time. Thanks for listening to Talking Law. Tune in next time for more smart legal tips and tricks to keep you clear of those legal landmines. If you want to get a download of today's show notes, head over to talkinglaw.com.au. Information in this podcast is general in nature, not legal advice. If you want advice for your business, visit talkinglaw.com.au. Thank you.